0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash
0: metaverse impact.
1: You and Betty and the Nancys and
2: Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer,
1: more rewarding life. I'm Andre Viscontis. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. When someone tells me a story about a person who made an incredible contribution to science, and that includes all kinds of Unexpected twists and turns, they really capture my attention. Lulu Miller is a science reporter who's won a Peabody, and she's a frequent contributor to Radiolab, among other places. She's the co-founder of NPR's Invisibilia, a show about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. So it shouldn't be surprising that she was the one who uncovered all of the backstory about this one person that I'd never heard of, David Starr Jordan. Apparently, in his day, he had actually discovered nearly a fifth of all the fish known to humans. And then the 1906 earthquake trashed his entire collection. But that didn't stop him from continuing his work. Lulu Miller's book, Why Fish Don't Exist, is a story of loss, love, and the hidden order of life. It's part memoir, part biography, but really also a philosophical take on taxonomy in general – and how we catalog all of the living things with which we share this earth. Lulu Miller, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Your book is such a delight. I, I have to say, there have been a number of times when I've lost track of time while reading it because I get lost in these just really profound stories that you tell. And they're not only stories of your main character, David Starr Jordan, but also of your own journey. So I want to start by asking you to tell our listeners, like, why did you pick this particular person to write a book about?
2: I know, and spend so many years with. I didn't mean to. I really didn't think it was going to go so far. But I, I mean, I think for me, so he's this kind of obscured naturalist from the 1800s. And I think for me... It kind of goes back to growing up with a scientist father who was very dogmatically atheist and nihilistic. And like anytime I'd go to him with some kind of big question about what is the meaning of life or, you know, is there magic? Like anything from as soon as I could understand words, he was telling me there's no meaning, there's no magic, like there's just atoms and chaos and... I loved it. He's a very playful, fun guy, and he showed me how to kind of like savor life and find a lot of wonder through science. His whole thing was like, let's focus on what's really here and what we can prove and see and find wonder that way. Um, but I think it also left me with this craving for, I guess moral instruction. Um, I think the way that he talked about the world was always just that nothing meant anything. And if it meant something, it could mean many things. <laughs> it was ambiguous. So there was just this like craving for some moral clarity. And I I was in my late 20s and had kind of just like messed up a lot of things in my life, had messed up a relationship, had left a job that I loved, was trying to work on fiction, really wasn't working out. And I just felt really lonely and lost and unsure of basically like if you keep working on something that doesn't seem like it's going to work out is that the path to insanity, humiliation, loneliness, or is that what you need to do sometimes? Is that a kind of like faith that will get you somewhere? So that was, my, that was my emotional question. And I heard about David Starr Jordan. I had heard about him years ago as this passing anecdote, as this guy who did not back down in the face of destruction and chaos. So he, his first collection of fish was struck by lightning and burnt to the ground. 20 to 30 years later he built up another collection and it came down in the 1906 earthquake of San Francisco and he instead of kind of giving up and thinking hmm maybe the quest of order is doomed in a world ru- ruled by chaos he just kept going and he invented this weird little technique of sewing labels to directly to the fish his specimens themselves so that in theory an earthquake could no longer separate a label from a fish and his order would stay tight to the fish. And I don't know, it's like this obscure technique in taxonomical storage practices. But for me, there was something really deep about that gesture and that decision to keep going and keep fighting and believing chaos got me. Well, I can I can reel it in. I can tame it. I can overcome it. And I kind of, I don't know, because he was a scientist, he just appeared to me like a person who might have something to teach me. And I wondered, authentically, I heard that one little detail, and I wondered what became of this guy and who he was.
1: The beauty of this particular person, too, is that he kept these very detailed journals, which, you know, a lot of scientists do, but often that's just, you know, their lab notes about what's going on. You know, I think it's, at least these days, it's very rare for a person to write uh, also so many details about their own life. And so, you know, you describe this, you know, getting, and, you know, these out of print journals from a secondhand bookseller, and the you know, that even the amount still stays in my hand, $27.99. <laughs> um, so can you tell us a little bit about what it was like when you started to do the research here, and, and you were able to kind of use his journals as a primary source?
2: Yeah, totally. So that's when it turned, I thought I'd write a short little essay about this guy or something, and then yeah, he was he was a journaler. He wrote poems. He wrote children's stories. He drew. He, like, had philosophical treatises. He was such a great, I mean, there was so much in there. And he's really funny. Like, he's, A, a great writer, really vivid, and he's funny. He'll say these little things like, I've never, something like, you know, I've never known a man who can shout and tell the truth at the same time. And I'm like, oh, these deep little weird things are like, one of my life goals was to clasp my hands and jump through them. Like, such a nerd. Like, I don't know. There's, there's just so much charm um, and weirdness. He's weird. Um, and, he, and as a boy, he was really passionate about the natural world. I mean, always, but especially these stories from his boyhood was kind of sweet. He was like bullied and a loner and just took all this comfort in the natural world. And who's not going to love a character like that? But very quickly, I I started to see that his life, I don't know, without giving too much away or maybe we can talk about it, but he, he has a serious dark side too. And so it was this interesting person to study because he's charm and you fall in love with him and then you know that you are also like getting increasingly horrified by him. So for me as a person to just unravel and try to understand, it was so rich and so... I don't know. It felt like my own little thriller, like falling down his life was just, it was not boring. It was just, it was like filled with charm and, and intrigue and danger. And so I just, I just kept looking and there was so much there. There was so much to look at.
1: I still, I don't, I, it's gonna be a long time before I can get this image out of my head. You start it with your book, and then it's all, you know, it comes back again in the middle of the book as, as we catch up to that time. And it is essentially what's happening during the 1906 earthquake to this collection. And, you know, you, you start out the beginning of the book with this description of he's got all these specimens. I mean, he was, you you mentioned that he was responsible for like naming like a fifth of all the fish that we had known in his time. So like really prolific, like really important, big collection that, you know, yeah, shatters. And I, you know, could just imagine him standing in this, in this room with just like shards of glass and bits of fish and like labels willy nilly everywhere. Um, And and that's how you start out your book. And then we come to the scene again, in the middle of the book, having learned a lot more about him. And so, you know, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, how learning about who he was, and, you know, how he sort of, you know, on the one hand, it'd just be interesting to hear a story of a scientist who lost his collection and then had to rebuild it, right? But like, it becomes so much more interesting with all these layers that we hear about the, the things that he went through. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of that moment in his life and why you found it so interesting?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what I was wondering is how does a person... Like let's imagine for me it, it would be writing. Let's let's imagine that like 20 years of stuff I'd save saved on Dropbox just vanished or it was all, you know, all the sentences were out of order. Like how would you not just crumple into a heap and like give in to despair and just think, "Oh, I can't even do this anymore." Or or ne- like I would never try to resurrect what I had lost. And and yet he does. It's like he just dusts off and keeps going almost like a toy, like a, a wind up robot, robotic car or something, you know, just boom, let's keep going. And um, And I think how he filled himself with that optimism, like what he was whispering to himself to keep going was what I was really curious about. And interestingly, so he, on one hand, he has this strong scientific mind. So he believes in these ideas that Science generally hates beliefs, is something his teacher says that you should never trust a belief, that you should look to nature, not books. You should look to the natural world itself for all your knowledge. And so he has this kind of extreme, I would call it an accurate worldview, suspicion of magical thinking, of hope. Um, And yet, the more, and so he prides himself on that. One of his favorite pastimes is going to seances in San Francisco and debunking the mediums. So he's just like, he's very particularly wary of magical thinking or optimism. But then with the more and more you start to like, he says that, but the more you start to look at his writings in other situations, he kind of reveals that he actually has all this confidence and overconfidence in what humans can do and how he actually believes they're stronger than the fates themselves. And so I think that basically kind of what I learned about him is that he prides himself on having a humble worldview. But when push comes to shove, when he's in moments of desperation, you can see this through his behavior, how he treats people throughout life. You can see this in how other people's descriptions of him. Um, He behaves with like utter hubris and recklessness. And so it's interesting to think about how those two things can exist in a person.
1: I feel like it's so relevant today, too, like in in a sense, you know, because a lot of us, I think, are struggling with seeing some of our heroes, uh, science being not left alone in this uh, Me Too movement. Be, you know, behaving badly, and I, I think that there there is this kind of you know question that people have is, well, should should science then be like? I understand if an artist who behaves badly, you know, is shamed and then their art suffer, you know, is 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 devalued because art is something that is tied to the identity of the creative who makes it. But science is not supposed to be that way, right? Like, that's the whole difference between scientific and artistic creativity, right? And so like, should we take down a person's scientific value, if they are an asshole? (laughs) You know, if they are if they behave immorally, uh, and I feel like that's kind of one of the questions that really comes through in this book. And, and so, yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. Like, what, what, did, what conclusions did you come to? I mean, maybe we should give the listeners a little bit of an idea of the kind of immoral behavior that we're referring to. And then, yeah, and then, and then how do you reconcile that with, you know, his work? Well, very
2: quickly, one thing I think in the process of this book, like, I have come to realize that science is just – it's just as, you know, just falls prey to all the things that art or literature does. That, is, that it actually is more – that it has a real subjectivity to it and a profound one. And that, you know, even the most purest of intentioned scientist is bringing biases into every question, the way they design and experiment, what question they ask. And so that has been like – the process of this book was actually – not a falling out of faith with science at all because I'm a science reporter. I believe in I believe in science. It matters. Um but it's but I'm more wary of results, I think, than I used to be. Um but yeah, specifically David R. Jordan, I mean some of his some of the things he gets into, the big you know, the, the real biggie is eugenics. Uh, He was one of the earliest and loudest proponents of the eugenic movement. And I think one thing sometimes people say about scientists who back in the 19th and earliest 20th century were in eugenics was, oh, well, that's just where science went. It wasn't necessarily their fault. It was different in, in those times. But the truth is there was, and this was something that really astounded me, there was tons of opposition to the eugenics movement everything from the catholic church to judges to heroic governors the pennsylvania governor struck down their the first eugenics law in pennsylvania saying that it would you know that it would be to inflict cruelty on a class that we have undertaken to protect i mean there was tons of scientific and political opposition to eugenics and yet he david S. R. jordan just clung to his certainty that um, there were certain traits that could be extinguished from the human population by sterilizing people, you know and ludicrous things that he believed traits of personality or poverty or criminality were were encoded in the blood. And he was just so wrong about that there and, and he really pushed for it really hard in the face of in the face of opposition. And then there was more interpersonal stuff he would he could just be incredibly, reckless and and violent, basically with emotionally violent, um, with anyone who stood in his way. There are just these horrific stories of people that he threatened or fired or told lies about. Um and then the, the, there's a there's a there's a real potential that he was involved in a murder or pot or short of that, pretty definitely involved in the cover-up of a murder. And so <laughs> he has a a really dark, like the the breadth and depth of his wreckage is, is pretty extreme.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal Chewable Tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive.
1: I'm glad you brought that up, because it just tells our listeners, it's not just about a guy who collects a bunch of fish. <laughs> I mean, There's there's a lot in this book, which is why it can be so hard to put down. Um, and I, I think that it, you know, so, so often, we have been struggling with some of these ideas, and we sort of talk about philosophically, but kind of hearing about this first person story, you know, or I shouldn't say first person, but this sort of like sort of deep dive into this Biography, essentially, that you're highlighting. Um, But it's also infused with some of the things that you were struggling with yourself. So there's an autobiographical component to it. I just found it a really compelling way of grappling with some of these really difficult issues, um, and a a completely novel way of doing so. And so I, I wondered if you might talk a little bit about your decision to insert your autobiographical Observations, um, and is that you know? Are you hoping, like, what what are you hoping that the reader takes away from the melding of the two?
2: I mean, they 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 came in somewhat reluctantly. I think. I mean, honestly, your your first question today was like, "Why do you care about this random guy?" <laughs> and my editor had the same question after my first draft, um, and he was like, "You know, there's some it goes some wacky places, and there, you know, but like." why do you care? And I finally had to sit down and and get honest with my – I mean, I knew why I cared and, and it was because I wondered very authentically, like, how you go on in the face of a world which you believe has no promises on a day where you're mad at yourself and you don't think you have any chance. You know, like, how do you climb your way out of hurt if you don't have faith and you don't have any sense that the universe will ever reward you? Like, how do you move forward on a dark day? And that's where the question came from. That's, like, when I first rolled out of bed and went to some archives and started researching him. It was a very authentic, almost desperate, like, desire to see, at least to have the specificity of research into this one guy's life. Like, it gave me something to research and hold on to and investigate. And that's kind of how it started was just from this very, just like, it was kind of a Hail Mary. It's like, let's see what happened to this guy. And that'll maybe at least distract me from how, how low I'm feeling. And so slowly with lots of free writing and kind of like mixing with the balance of how much I wanted to share, I like very slowly kind of worked with my editor to Put in some details of my life, which again, like it's hopefully it's not too much. Like it's actually not that much page space, but it is some rather. <laughs> I kind of give you like a lot of my shame and hurt and privacy, <laughs> all wrapped up into like a chapter or two. Um, but I think I think at the end of the day, you know, I've been working, you know, on shows like Invisibilia and where we we, we really talk about darkness. We talk about people's emotions, and I just you see from listener male, it's like, oh, thank goodness someone's just saying this. Like and not saying it in a voyeuristic, you know, kind of way where it's like, ooh, this person is weird for having a dark thought. It's like, yeah, we all have them. What the heck do we do with them? <laughs> um and so I thought, you know what? Like, let me turn the proverbial microphone on myself for a little bit. And and I just, I don't know, I went there. And it comes out in a week and we'll see <laughs> how that feels. Once other people can read it. But yeah, I don't know. It just it just came out slowly, and and I think I'm I think I'm getting comfortable with it, but it is a, it is a little scary.
1: Uh, I mean, yeah, it's 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 very brave, you know. But uh, also, I feel like it launches this book into a different level. Um, it goes beyond just your kind of usual quirky biography of a long dead, you know, person. I honestly think that in some ways it's prescient because here we find ourselves in a situation in which all of us now, to some extent, are revealing aspects of our personal lives, our fears, our anxieties, our the you know the sounds that our toddlers make, you know, <laughs> know. all these things I'm, that we right. <laughs> we kept very compartmentalized. I mean, you know, like. Yeah like like Justin Trudeau the Prime Minister of Canada was self isolating with three of his kids cuz his wife you know was had tested positive for COVID-19 and so like he was late for a press re- you know, conference or whatever on his Zoom because his six-year-old wouldn't get out of the bath. You know, I mean, like, it's like, it's a different world. It is. And it is so intimate. It's like we're all, you know, there's all these
2: jokes about like COVID hair or, you know, but it's like we were like going into a place separate from our homes gives us this illusion, you know, like at least it, it forces us to like snap into this other self. And it is weird conducting all this work at home. Like it is profoundly, it's really intimate. It is. And you have to like look for the one place in your house where the background doesn't show what a mess you are. <laughs> and like yeah. just all that. It's it's intimate. It's strange.
1: And yet in some ways, like I feel like it's it's a good time to go back and look at some of these scientists from you know the 19th century or the you know, turn of the 20th, because they they were much more willing, I think, to divulge some of their personal thoughts, for better or for worse. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit more about his actual science and what made him so successful as a taxonomist. And, you know, we, we, you mentioned, uh, Louis Agassiz, I don't know if I'm butchering his name. And, um, you know, this is also where like the story continues to become so poetic because in that moment after the 1906 earthquake, or during the 1906 earthquake, I should say when he, you know, if, if you can think of him as looking back towards his mentor for help, you know, he goes outside his office and he sees the statue of, uh, you know, Louis, like literally head first in the Cement with the feet poking up, like totally overturned. It's
2: comedic. Like that, I'm like, that was one of the images where I was like, oh my God, I got to write this thing. Like this is so, it just seems not only is the universe telling you order, you'll never succeed in ordering me with the lightning and then the earthquake. But right, I'm going to take your prophet, your teacher, the person you call your master, the statue of which is over your lab and toss it into the cement. Like I'm going to, you know, defile him and and make a joke out of him. Literally what is concrete, but like water mixed with sand, it's going to show you that your head is in the sand if you think you can ever order me. I mean, it's just like... It feels to me like an epic, or a myth, or a parable, like for like for heathens, you know, like where your ruler is not a god or gods. It's it's chaos, and here is chaos delivering some very clear messages. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like his actual, in terms of what made him so good at being an ichthyologist, like why was he able to? I mean, he discovered you know over two thousand new species of fish, just unthinkable like to get to discover one is a person's achievement you know to have discovered thousands is is just amazing i think i th- is that sort of the question like what actually made him good at his work
1: yeah i mean and you know i i start with the statue because in some ways it was like him defying louis right who never who never accepted evolution and that was like kind of the big black stain on his his mentor and so so like yeah I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how you know David changed his worldview and came on board with evolution at a time when even his most beloved mentor was saying that it was all a bunch of b s
2: well i think what what is so admirable about him like there are you know it's 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 the it's the kind of like importance of complexity and never writing someone off as just good or bad. Like there, he, there were very admirable moments in his career. One of the things really, yeah, when he was a young scientist was just he had such a malleable mind. And at the beginning, he really didn't cling to beliefs. He was willing to let anything go. And so, yeah, the teacher who really changed his life, Louis Agassiz, this famous Swiss naturalist and geologist, had taught him this idea that that looking at nature and and trying to you know understand the taxonomies of who was closely related to whom that he called it quote missionary work of the highest order because Agassiz believed this was a way that every single species was a thought of God, and if you could arrange all the species in their proper order, you would literally translate the thoughts of God and you'd learn basically the meaning of life and the directions to ascension and all this stuff. And that initially filled David with a lot of purpose because this this habit this 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 hobby of collecting, which everyone else in his life had ridiculed, his mom had thrown away some early maps he drew, like no one at his school cared, no one had cared. neighbors had called it shameful and wasteful um, suddenly here 's a man saying this this matters, this really matters more than anything and then just a few years later, you know the ideas of Darwin start to really pick up steam. And Darwin's saying, no, species aren't created by God. Darwin leaves a little bit of room for God. He says that maybe there, you know, there might be a divine sheen to the natural world because God is involved in the forces themselves, but that it's not at all what Agassi said. It's not, you know, it's not a thought of God. It's not reading a text. And it was really hard for David. He has this wonderful line that goes, I, I went over to the evolutionist camp as a cat might be dragged by the tail or something that might not be word for word, but it's basically like, I was pulled against my will to the evolutionists, but I went there. And you know, like, I love that line, because it hurt his heart to do it. But he was such a good scientist, because he, he looked at the natural world and he couldn't deny all these, these points that Darwin were making was making, like, specifically the idea that species aren't as necessarily distinct from one another as we would like to believe because sometimes species can cross and this side of like the the line between species is actually a really gray area and so he went there the world showed him something he didn't like but he he observed it and and i think that throughout his career he was he was obsessive about looking he loved the hunt he had a real unease with the unknown Ever since he was a little kid, like, he wanted to name every star, then every flower, and finally it was fish. And so there was this, like, I think the mix of his success was basically obsession. He hated the unknown. He wanted to name everything. He wanted to know what everything was. And then a carefulness. He, he would look at species for such a long time, and he would be wary of beliefs of what people said, who was related to whom. You know, he would, he would look to nature for answers. And in my opinion, his life really devolves. Or, or he starts to go astray, and t- when he when he clings to a certainty, like that's what did him in. He could not let go of a belief in eugenics, and he he closed his eyes to counter evidence. He just he started clinging to a belief, and that is where he got into trouble. Like that, that for me is the big lesson. Like uncertainty is your friend. Uncertainty can do it. Incredible things, and that we should all bring more uncertainty into our lives. And it's very hard; it's very uncomfortable. But that, I mean, that to me is the clear lesson of him.
1: And, and I feel like it was that belief, and, and that that really kind of shunned him from the history of science books. You know, this is why he became an obscure figure, in a sense, uh, perhaps. And you know, like, yeah, we don't we don't want to talk about someone who was so profoundly wrong about something, you know, so profoundly important. So your book, uh, for our listeners uh, to be reminded, uh, is called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Lost Love and the Hidden Order of Life. Uh, It took me a long time to understand that title, (laughs) Why Fish Don't Exist. Yes. Uh, So can you, you know, tell us a little bit about that choice and what it means? Yes.
2: Can I ask you, do you think, where are you? Okay, I, like, and you can be the most 100% honest. Like, do you think fish exists now? <laughs>
1: um, I mean, you know, uh, if anything exists, fish exists, <laughs> right? Like, I think <laughs> that, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I this whole idea of, of naming and, you know, yeah, I, I I I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You do. You still believe in
2: fish. You were not convinced. That's okay. Okay. So for what it means is basically that taxonomists, people, modern day taxonomists, people charged with trying to figure out how all species are interconnected and who was descended from whom and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, they have, since the 1980s, most of them have been pretty clear that fish as a legitimate evolutionary category of creatures does not exist. So what does that mean? It means like it's a sloppy category. It would be like saying all things that have spots and are loud. That's a that's a category. So fine, it's a category you can make, but it doesn't tell you anything about the natural world or about evolutionary relationships. And basically the idea here is that to have a true group of creatures. It has to include an ancestor and every single descendant. Fish has all these things, some of which are actually way closer, more closely related to us than to each other. So take something like a lungfish, which looks like a fish. It's scaly, it's slimy, or a coelacanth. People thought those were extinct. They're still around. It's this like scaly, fishy, it's like the fishiest fish you could ever imagine. If you actually look inside them, you start to see all these things. Um, they basically have lung like organs. They have this thing called an epiglottis, which is a flap over the throat. There are all these technical things I won't bore you with, but that make them more closely related to mammals than to other fish. And so when you accept that, like when you're not distracted by this cloak of scales and the fact that they live in the water, then you start to realize well, to call that category fish, you'd have to either include like frogs and humans <laughs> and birds, fine, you could still call that fish and it could mean vertebrates. But to be more precise and to actually talk about a group of creatures, you can't use that term. Like it doesn't, there's actually far more nuance in the water and you'd have to start using a few other words that that differentiate it. Like basically to me, fish is like a kind of gerrymandering where we're trying to push creatures further away from us that are actually closer um, to preserve a sense of of separation and a sense that we're higher than we believe we are. And so, you know, I've got to get my soundbite down of how to do that. But I think to me, the main thing is like a kind of on one hand, fine, fussy semantic distinction. I don't care. I'm still going to like eat fish for dinner. But I also think it actually deeply matters where we have to think like even our most basic terms might be wrong, that like we shouldn't trust in the most basic things. And when you let go of the fish, you start to see that like a lot of your understanding of the natural world of order itself may be totally bunk. And so for me, it's this mantra. It's this, it's like a, you know, it sounds kind of cliched when you simplify it, but that it's like question everything, even the most basic things under your feet, because you your assumptions and your intuition about what's what may be profoundly wrong. So yeah, that's kind of, that's what it means to me.
1: No, I mean, yeah, I love hearing you talk about it, because I feel like it's, you know, I'm asking the impossible of you, which is to take some of these really deep and profound ideas that you that kind of emerge or emergent properties of your writing and the story in your book, and like, put them into a few simple sentences. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's not just me that finds that really difficult. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, you know, I don't want to oversimplify it. (laughs) And like, as for a title, I mean, there was a lot
2: of Going back and forth, I I always wanted it to be called that. Like this was the th- I, I kind of set the book out with that as the title, with the hope of it being like this suspense and this dare of like what the heck, lady that that pays off at the end, and I hope it pays off, but who knows? But for a while, you know, my publisher for a while was like this, you know, like I know it's an annoying title, like they were like no, like they really were like please come up with something else, and we. I mean, I had lists. I could pull them up. I don't know. Like they, we, I I tried. I authentically tried to come up with something else, but then I kind of finally went back and forth with my editor, and we were like, "This is the title of this book." Like, it may be off-putting or eye-rolling, but like, this is the title of this book. So, um, so it stayed. <laughs> the, yeah, no, art, it's it's great. Yeah.
1: And, I, and I and I hold on to fish in part because it's one of my daughter's first words. <laughs> Like, and yeah, the irony, of course, is that um we speak to her in Lithuanian and, and Lithuanian fish is Juvite or Juvis, which is really hard to say. And like, she has not learned that. But the other day, um she's 18 months old. And uh, we were watching, you know, I was letting because, you know, we're all self-isolating. And so there, you know, my six year old was watching a, a, a movie and and my daughter points to it and says fish. And we were just like, what? Where did you even oh get that word God. from? Okay, wait. Anyway. That is, okay, I was. I almost just told you this, but
2: I was like, oh, uh, two nights ago, my my son is eighteen months old exactly. Two nights ago, in the bath, he said fish for the first time, and it's probably like <laughs> his eleventh word. I was kind of trying to make a tally of like what other words. He does, you know. And I, being a being a nerd, I recorded it because I was like, <gasps> you're saying fish, and it was very powerful for me because that word is charged and like also my book tour just got canceled and I'm all sad. And I'm like, oh, but what a gift. And he he said it like, he was like, he, he, he. It's a, yeah. but like No, he she was, hasn't
1: said dog or cat or anything, just fish.
2: Yeah. And like, he can't say what? It's like, fish is that prime. And I was like, oh my God, like, I don't even, th- I mean, maybe I do say the word fish a lot because of my life right now, but I don't think I do around him. And I was like, wow, fish is that basic. And to me, I was both like, oh, what a gift and how cute. But then I was also like, this is the mo- this is the loss of innocence like or there was just something really powerful in me that that was his 11th word and it's so interesting to hear for you too that it's like yeah it's a basic concept weirdly it's it's like a way we separate ourselves from creatures and and what i'm trying to say in the book is like it's a false term we are much closer to the things in the water than than we think and that matters for the planet that matters for science but that also matters i think for how we like view one another and how we view the Weird little hierarchies we create with each other, and just to—it's like for me, it's a call to arms to to just keep questioning, like who is an expert, who is not, who deserves, you know, care or attention or whatever services, whatever it might be. Just like keep checking your assumptions, and and for those reasons, it like yes, it's this stupid, annoying, philosophical, fussy, semantic distinction, but it's also like to me, it's important.
1: Lulu Miller, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for for talking about this weird, weird little book. I really appreciate it. You've asked such lovely questions. (laughs) So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com inquiringminds. We need your support these days more than ever. Another way to support us is to give us a review wherever you find your podcasts. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer-Awald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next week.